We've been in a series now. This is the last part of our series, kind of leading up to Easter Sunday. Uh, Easter Sunday is victorious. Um, but getting to Easter Sunday means you've got to go through the cross, and the cross is anything but victorious. We've, uh, we've listened to a lot of different ways in which Jesus uh, gets where we are, where, what we're like. It's a crazy thing. Christians are the only people, this is the truth, that Christians are the only religious, religious people who confess that, uh, the, that God or the gods fully and completely understand what it is like to be human beings. When, when, the, when the incarnation happens and, and Jesus takes on flesh and full human nature, he takes into himself every single part of human nature, ups, downs, the, the strikes, the gutters, every bit of who we are, he gets. And today we're going to see um, probably the darkest part of, of who we are. And we're going to see he gets that too. So we're going to be in uh, Luke 23 and John 1. I'd like you uh, to join me. I'm going to read uh, from the New King James here, uh, the, the crucifixion of the Son of God. This is uh, Luke 23. And when they, uh, that is Jesus and, um, and Simon and the, the, the robbers, had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And they, the, uh, the soldiers, divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. His soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of, Jews, of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. I'm just dropping down to verse 44 here. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. I mean... There's not, uh, there's not a lot to say about crucifixion other than that it's horrible. Uh, the New King James has Calvary. Calvary is the Latin translation of Golgotha, the place of the skull. Probably this was named uh, because there was a hill kind of outside Jerusalem that sort of probably looked like a skull. And so the people thought it would be a really good place to execute criminals. And when we talk about crucifixion, we know we have an intuitive understanding that it's really painful. Right? That's, that's something that it's pretty obvious. Pretty obvious that crucifixion hurts. The question that sort of lurks behind is what is it about crucifixion that hurts and why is it done? Uh, on Friday, on Friday we were at the Living Gardens in Palm Springs. And uh, this is a, a zoo that's out in Palm Springs and thank God we had tremendous weather. Like it was, it was, you know, I think it was like high of like 82, which in Palm Desert, Palm Springs is nuts. So it was super nice. And uh, Alice and Olivia and uh, their friend Zoe Cheshire were having a great time. They're running around. We, they, we fed a giraffe. And the giraffe has a very long, black, slimy tongue. And I know that now. We, uh, they rode camels. It was pretty fun. I mean, there's a lot of cool things you can do at this place. And yet, because they're children, uh, Alice is seven, I think Zoe's eight, maybe nine, uh, Olivia's five, because they're kids, they want to do something that's, that's wrong, that's prohibited. And so, 
and we're like, oh, look, we let you feed these birds and, and feed this giraffe and ride this camel. And they're like, we don't care. What we really want to do is go to the places we're not allowed. And so they were running, and, and there's these like little fences. And they were like, let's just jump over the fence and run through those thorny bushes. And I'm like, no, that's a terrible idea. Why would you, why would you think that's fun? But they were trying to do it, and Aaron and I were yelling at him, getting frustrated. And finally, we saw this. Rattlesnakes. There's a fence. There's a fence there, and right behind it is a, is a sign that says rattlesnakes. And it says rattlesnakes may... Well, I didn't even read it. Instead, what I did is I said, Alice... You're in first grade. You think you know how to read. Zoe, you're in second grade. You think you know how to read. Read aloud to me this sign. And so they kind of went through it. You know, rattlesnakes might be, might, might be here. Uh, they're not going to attack unless they're cornered. They will defend themselves. So if you're like, if you're stepping on them, they're going to bite you and you will die. <laughs> and then we didn't have any more problems with the kids going into the fence anymore. It was done. It's finished. They were finding other things to do. Why is that? Is it because there's really rattlesnakes there? I don't know, maybe. Honestly, I think they're just lying to keep the kids scared. It's what we call a deterrent, and it was super effective. I mean, all I had to do was like, like that. Is that what you want, kids? No, there's other you know, bad things that you can do, like you know, throw water at animals or something. Don't, but don't go back there. Well, similarly, uh, crucifixion in the ancient world was really designed to be a deterrent. The Romans, uh, they, they found the practice barbaric. They actually learned it from barbarians, uh, people that were uncivilized. And so the Romans, they took the idea of crucifixion, and they thought, this is what we do to people who are uncivilized. They are less than human. They deserve to be treated like animals that are less than human. Up here we have, uh, this is from the movie Spartacus. If you'll remember, Spartacus was a, the leader of a slave revolt in the ancient, ancient Roman Empire. And once the revolt was quelled, instead of just executing everybody, what the Romans did is they put these guys on crosses all along the main road so that everyone who's walking by gets the message. Gee, if I don't want to be treated like an animal and humiliated and tortured to death, I probably should not revolt. Because crucifixion was primarily a deterrent, the Romans allowed themselves to be as egregious and as horrific with their torture as, the, as their bloodlust warranted. So we actually have, um, we have accounts of different types of crucifixion that um, involve the piercing of, of bad parts of the body. We have uh, accounts of people being crucified upside down um, at, a, at a slant. The whole point was the Roman soldiers were given free reign to cause as much pain and as much humiliation as possible so that no one would ever try to do what this person or these people did. And so when we go back to the text, notice this. There's an inscription over Jesus. Notice it's in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Three different languages. Uh, Latin, very few people in the ancient world spoke Latin at this time. Um, almost everybody spoke Greek. Greek was the, uh, the English of the ancient world. And so wherever you went, you could find somebody who could sp- speak some Greek. But the Romans went out of their way, and they also used Hebrew on this inscription. Because the only people who knew what Hebrew meant were Jews. So they found a translator or something like that. Why are they doing that? When it says, this is the king of the Jews, what the Romans are saying is, this is what you get. When you think you're the king. And so all of you out there who are thinking about rebelling, all of you who are out there who are going to call yourself the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, look at what happens to people who do that. And maybe rethink your plans. 
It's interesting, after the execution of Jesus, we don't have another person claiming to be Messiah until about 68 AD, a solid 30, 40 years later. This was such an effective deterrent. After those guys were all murdered and the temple was destroyed, it took another 50 or 60 years before another Jewish person, uh, Simon Bar Kokhba, rose up and said, I'm this Messiah. The, the, the practice of the humiliation and denigration of crucifixion, the pain that is both physical, which obviously it's physical, but also is, is psychological and emotional, was so damaging and so effective that almost nobody was willing to rebel after they saw what happened to Jesus. This is the first thing in your note sheets. Jesus' physical suffering was inflicted as a deterrent to would-be messiahs. A deterrent. Well, if we go back to the text, um, there's an interesting part here. Now, it's about the sixth hour. uh, Six hours noon. Jesus was probably put on the cross right about nine. So now he's been on the cross for three hours. And there's darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. The ninth hour is about 3 p.m. Jesus is crucified for about six hours. For three of those hours, there's darkness all over the earth. You may wonder why crucifixion takes as long as it does. Uh, we have accounts of people who um, suffered crucifixion for days before they finally capitulated. Uh, the fact is, is that Jesus' beatings before the crucifixion were so severe uh, and there was so much blood loss that he was not able to survive very long. What was going on at this time, though, while he was, while he was uh, being crucified, is it's interesting. We know um, that the way the Romans did things is they had, um, they had the cross. I think I have a picture of this. Uh, they had the cross, and, and kind of like you would be hanging, right, because there would be a nail through each of your wrists, and so you'd be hanging, and there was a little peg or a, a wooden, almost a, they called it a, a sedile, which is actually the cognate where we get our word saddle, a seat that you would sit on. And this was to prolong your life, because if you were hanging just by your arms, you'd suffocate very quickly. Um, but by hanging on the, the sedile, you would um, have a, a little bit of support so that your lungs could continue working, but you were still sagging. What was happening then is the Romans would crucify uh, your, or uh, throw a stake through um, your heel, um, either like on the front, so you would be like this. Or on the sides, you'd be hanging like this. The point of that was you'd be sinking down on the seat. And at a certain point, this, this grinding weight of your own body is, is, is hurting your wrist so much that you push up to get off of the seat and put all of the pressure on uh, your, your feet, which are also um, staked to the cross. And what this was meant to do, of course, is uh, to make it so that at every moment of your crucifixion, you're for- forced to choose between which pain, which pain is less. And then when it becomes too great to bear, you shift to the other. This is what happens to the king of the Jews. I've, you know, physical suffering is uh, it's a wild thing. I've never endured uh, like the really bad stuff. Um, no one's diagnosed me with cancer, no leukemia. I know a guy who um, was in the, uh, a burn unit for a month because his uh, skin was on fire. And uh, he talks about it now, and he's like, I, you know, I stopped thinking at a certain point. There were just days that would go by when I had no thoughts at all. All it was was just the agony of an animal. 
And I was just crying out. And all I could do, all I could, he couldn't speak because the, the inflammation was on his throat too. But all I could think was stop, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. And when the ordeal was over, it wasn't over. Because something truly traumatic had taken place. I have another friend who was uh, in the, the hospital for nine months uh, from catastrophic organ failure. And twice he, he died. Um, his family was there and the doctor said, this is it. There's, there's no coming back from this. Um, and so he said his goodbyes and, and then days later woke up. This happened two times. And so once the ordeal was over and he was truly convalescing, he confessed to me. He said, I can't sleep at night. Because every time I'm about to fall asleep, I begin to panic. I feel as though I won't wake up. And it's like I'm right back in the hospital bed. There's no such thing um, as, as a physical uh, pain as, as a sickness, as, a, as a, an illness, a, a suffering that isn't also psychological and emotional and to some extent spiritual. We don't, our bodies aren't, we're not made like that. We can't separate out pain from the way that it affects our minds and the way that it affects our emotions. And so when Jesus was there for three hours, well, six total, but three hours of darkness, um, pushing up and then, and then sagging down, there was something happening to him and to really the Godhead, where Godhead, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are experiencing firsthand the ultimate depth of human suffering. And so I, I can't speak, I mean, because again, like I haven't suffered anything like this. But I know that some of you have. And I know that a lot of us will. And he gets it. Next thing you know, Chief says that um, during his je- death, Jesus' own body becomes a burden. And, and it's true, like, you know, literally it's a burden, but also psychologically and emotionally, he carries things um, it, during this process that, uh, that we understand. I mean, PTSD is a real deal. And Jesus was getting it. But during these last three hours, from, uh, from 12 to 3, what else is going on? Well, um, Luke tells us a very interesting detail. Right now, the, the, there's darkness all over the earth because the sun itself is darkened, right? And the veil of the temple is torn in two. It's a very strange thing to add. Um, pretty clearly, something weird happened. A lot of people knew it, but they didn't know what to make of it. Notice that Luke doesn't tell us what any of this meant. He just said, look, this is what happened. A lot of people have told me about this, and so I'm including it. I'm not sure I understand it, but this is what took place. Like, literally, the sun itself stopped being bright. And, and, and afterwards, or maybe during, we found out that the veil of the temple was torn in two. What, what does this mean? Well, uh, it could, uh, we know from the uh, a fact that the New Testament authors themselves didn't quite get this. It was hard for them to make sense of it because it's so strange. 
They were not exactly clear what was going on when Jesus is being crucified. And it takes a long time of thinking and prayer and revelation before they can really explain it. It might be that, that God is just, is just making a, a statement, being like, this is symbolic, this is significant, this tragedy is the tra- most tragic tragedy that has ever been tragic. It could be that, but I think it's something more, and I think it's something that if we look at John 1, the first chapter of John, we're going to get a taste for what is actually happening in a way where, where it's like, it's, like it, it's so much that it's beyond words, almost. So look at this. This is John 1.29. So uh, John the baptizer, John the Baptist, sees Jesus. Jesus is his cousin. He's known Jesus, but now he's, he's received insight. And Jesus is coming to him to be baptized. And John says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A note there, uh, who takes away in New King James. The uh, Greek verb there is iro. Iro uh, almost always means to take something up and move it somewhere else. Uh, it, it usually gets translated, carries, carries away. You carry something away. And so what is John doing here? The, the Lamb of God who, takes, who carries away the sin of the world. Here's an interesting fact. Does anybody know what John is referencing? Anybody? The Lamb of God. What, is the, what does he mean when he says Jesus is the Lamb of God? He's is he referencing something? What, if, if you were an ancient person and you heard that, you were Jewish and you heard the Lamb of God, what would you think? Does anyone know? I'm sorry? When they left Egypt. Ah, okay, great. Yes, the Passover, right? There's a Passover lamb. That's a really good one. Yes, yes. Anything else, possibly? Oh, we'll talk about that in a second. The scapegoat. Yes, not, not a lamb, of course, but it, that carries away thing. We're going to talk about that in a second. Yes, what else? I'm sorry? Sacrifice, yes, uh, lamb sacrifice. Typically, sacrifice for a sin was a bull, but there are interesting sacrifices that were specifically called for a lamb. We'll talk about that in a second. Anything else? The spotless lamb, yes, uh, and those lambs had to be spotless, perfect, totally innocent, very good. No blemishes. Very good. Let's take a look at this. Uh, I have a, a, a pastiche of images. Here we go. And you'll see that almost all of, uh, you, you guys got almost all of these. The, the only one you miss is in the bottom right, uh, Abraham and Isaac. If you remember this story, Abraham uh, is told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And on the way to the sacrifice, Isaac's looking around and he's like, Dad, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, oh, uh, God will provide the lamb. But then interestingly, if you look at that picture closely, you notice they didn't find a lamb. They found a ram. And they ended up sacrificing the ram. Maybe the implication is, is that there was a, that the, the, God hadn't quite provided the ultimate lamb yet. Maybe, maybe there's another lamb that's coming someday, and maybe that's the lamb of God. Uh, I can't remember, uh, was maybe Liz brought up the Passover, right? Uh, the Passover, one of the, the, the premier celebrations, festivals of the Jews. They, they go and they, they eat a lamb, but what they did uh, at the very first Passover is they took that lamb's blood and they put it on their doorpost. And that was a signal to death and punishment, the angel of death, to skip over and not visit death and punishment on this house. And so maybe that's the Lamb of God. Maybe the Lamb of God is, uh, is like this ultimate expression of, of, of a, a Lamb that will come along and, and, and cause all death, all, all punishment to, to pass over, to move on. Uh, Monica brought the scapegoat. You can see that uh, this is from Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the priest would bring out a goat 
And he would put his hand over the goat and he would like wave it and he would say some stuff. And symbolically, all of the sins, all of the wrongdoing, the law breaking of everyone in the nation was put on that goat. And then that goat would carry it away. He'd slap the goat. It would run out. Symbolically taking, carrying all the sin of the people of Israel away. Maybe that is pointing towards a, a, a true final scapegoat. A scapegoat not just for the sins of Israel, but for the whole world, as John says. John uses the word cosmos for world. The whole universe. Everything that's wrong and disordered. Everything that's corrupt and evil. All of it sent away. And as Kathy noted, uh, sacrificial lambs, it was part of Israel's sacrifice system to, and as Dave brought out, to have unblemished, pure lambs. Do you know what these were for, typically? Almost always, it was when uh, you had been corrupted by something that wasn't your fault. So, for example, if you caught a disease like leprosy, you weren't allowed into the, 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 the temple. But uh, if you brought a sacrificial lamb, you could be made clean in the... Uh, in, there's, there's other things that we have absolutely no control over, uh, many of them to do with bodily functions um, and sexual activity that uh, would cause you to be, or inactivity, that would cause you to be stained. It's not your fault. These are things that just happened. And yet still, you needed to be purified, clean, have that stain removed. Maybe it's the case that God understands that there are things about us that it's not our fault. The abuse you received as a child, not your fault. And yet it corrupted you. Yet it stained you. Maybe God understands that there are things that you had nothing to do with. You were put in a situation where you suffered so deeply, it fractured you, and it changed you, and it made you want things that you really shouldn't want. And that's not your fault, but it's true, and it's real, and it needs to be fixed. And maybe the Lamb of God is the ultimate example of that, where you're purified, and all the stains, all of it, just taken away. Taken away and what? And put on the final Lamb of God. Maybe it's the case that the sky is darkening and the sun isn't producing light because at this moment, all of those things are happening once for all. And they're settling on the shoulders of one guy. And he's starting to sag underneath the weight of it all. Maybe, maybe Jesus' true burden isn't that he's suffering physically. Maybe it's that he's taking our place. Just as does God provide the ram to, so that Isaac didn't have to die? Maybe that's what's going on here, that, that it really should be you and it should be me up on that cross. It really should be us taking our licks. We're the ones who deserve it. And he steps in and he takes our place. And, and knowing that he's innocent, knowing that he's taking Tom's place, pulls a little heavier on his wrist. And maybe just like uh, the Passover, maybe he 
he's kind of shielding us. You know, the, the, the blood of the lamb, it was, it was sort of a shield, a protection, so that, that death and punishment just skipped over. It was as though the lamb was standing in the way and absorbing, absorbing death, absorbing punishment so that it didn't hurt the people of the home. And likewise, maybe as Jesus is there, it's the, he's, the suffering he's enduring is, is it's, it's being poured out on him so that it doesn't bleed over to us. And he's acting as like the shield standing in between us and the death and the punishment that really we deserve. And maybe like the scapegoat, all of the sin, all of the disorder of the world, and I intentionally say the disorder because really what sin is in, in the mind of the, of the Bible, the Old Testament, is it's anything that's not fit for the kingdom of God. It's any place where it's just sort of out of whack. Anything that's not the way God wants it to be. It's, it's leukemia, it's cancer, just as much as it's, you know, I'm jealous or hateful. It's everything that's wrong. And, and everything that's wrong corrupts and, 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 and messes with us and turns us into people we don't want to be. And sometimes makes us love being the people we shouldn't be. But all of that, past, present, future, not just uh, the Day of Atonement and not just for Israel as it was in the Old Testament. Now the Lamb of God comes in and he carries all of the disorder, the past, present, future of the entire universe. All of it. And the sky is darkening as all of that evil, all of that evil is settling on Jesus' shoulders. And he's sagging underneath the weight of every evil that has ever been, ever will be a part of the world we live in. And as it sag and it pushes him down, at times he has to, to push himself back up so that he can breathe underneath it. And then maybe just like um, the lambs of purification, maybe Jesus even takes onto himself uh, the brokenness and the corruption that we experience, even though. It's not our fault, even though it shouldn't have been that way, even though the abuse wasn't something we deserved and it wasn't something we could control. Maybe even that is settling on his neck. And all those burdens, those things that we carry in, day in, day out, it, it, it's, it's up there, that evil is in, it's in the, and it's just settling on his neck. And it pulls him down so that he can't breathe. So yes, I, I, I do think that when uh, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who carries away the sin of the world, I think he's referencing all of this. I think he's pulling in all of the weight of the Lamb um, and sin imagery of, of the Old Testament and saying, This is what's happening at the skull. On Friday, uh, in Minneapolis, at the Mall of America, a woman named Abby was walking on the third floor of the Mall of America with her two children. She had a double stroller. One of her children was an infant, one year old, and she was sitting in the double stroller. Her other child, was four years old, was walking a little bit ahead and next to her. As they were walking, I got a picture here of, uh, of Emmanuel Deshaun Aranda. Allegedly, this man... Um, began smiling at her in a very kind of creepy way. And her maternal instincts took over, and so she grabbed her four-year-old, caught up to the four-year-old, and put him in the stroller, and then kind of turned away. 
As soon as she did this, allegedly Emmanuel Deshaun Aranda uh, took his focus off of Abby uh, and, 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 and then turned to another woman who had a five-year-old boy. And without skipping a beat, he went over to that five-year-old boy and he picked him up and he threw him over the ledge of the third floor of the Mall of America. The mother of this five-year-old boy immediately began crying out, he threw my son over, pray for him, pray for him, pray for him, and was screaming that as she went down the three uh, stories to get to her broken boy. To, at this moment, he is still in the hospital. He's still alive. There is a GoFundMe that has raised $350,000 to try and save his life. On Saturday, Abby uh, was at home, and she called her pastor to come over. Um, and he did. He came, and he was sitting with her and uh, had, had endured some trauma of his own and so recognized all of the immediate um, uh, signs and symptoms of uh, massive trauma. And during the time that they were together, she confessed that there was a part of her that was glad that it had been that boy and not hers. Because she didn't know if she would have been able to bear it if her four-year-old son had been the one to go over the edge. My all-time favorite um, painting of the crucifixion is by the world's most nominal Christian, Salvador Dali. It's Christ of St. John of the Cross. I love this depiction uh, because of the symmetry. Because Do- uh, Dali says that he received this in a dream. It's interesting, very few uh, takes of the crucifixion are above, but what's interesting about this, this portrayal is that it allows Dolly to create two very important shapes. You'll notice that, um, that Jesus, by leaning out forward, is creating a triangle. Right, The cross beam and Jesus' arms create a triangle. At the bottom of that triangle is a circle. It's the head of Jesus. For those of you with a Trinitarian bent, you might think, well, a triangle with three, three, three points might be a representation of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And you might think that, that, that circles are a symbol from the ancient world of unity and oneness. And so there's a sense in which maybe the cross, the crucifixion of Christ, is an event that's taking place in the life of the triune God, where Father, Son, and Spirit, who are one yet are three, are somehow participating in this event. And if that's the case, then how? Notice the, the, the angle that's being done. It's Jesus is looking down right onto the world, right? The perspective that we are receiving from this painting is not the perspective of people on the world, but someone who is above the world, possibly God the Father himself. And if that's the case, then God the Father, by the Spirit, is watching as all of the evil of the world is being poured on the back of his Son, and then his son is being thrown over the edge of the third floor of the Mall of America. The funny thing is it's not just Jesus who is experiencing the depth of the possibility of suffering in the universe. By the Spirit, God the Father who has eternally enjoyed love and life and joy mutually with his son, is watching him carry all of our misdeeds, all of our brokenness, 
into a grave where he cannot reach him. It's the last thing in your note sheets is that at the cross, the father carries the burden of losing the son. If all this is true, then what we're confessing, what we're saying, what we're suggesting is that at the moment of the cross, whatever we have, whatever we will have, whatever we have had that is out of keeping with the life of God has been carried away. And every single person who lives has the opportunity at any moment to simply believe, simply trust that this is true. And because all of the evil, all of the things that have kept us away from God are now moved, now away, now we can finally be with God just as he's always desired. And maybe the veil of the temple was torn because the veil was a sign that you can't be with God because you're not worthy. The veil of the temple, if you don't know, it's a, it was, a, it was a, a deterrent, it was a rattlesnake sign that kept normal folks outside, away from the home of God. The holiest of holies. You couldn't go in there. You couldn't pass through the veil. God was beyond. God was too great, too holy, too wonderful. You were too dirty, too sinful, too ugly. And at the moment of the cross, when the sun carries all of the evil of the world, the veil is torn so that now there is nothing barring our access to the life, the divine, eternal life of God. We can be with him now in our lives and experience that now, and we can be with him forever in the eternal mutual joy and love of the triune God itself. And all it cost was that the father lose the son and that the son carry a burden that we could never possibly understand. Whatever you bring today, whatever evil, whatever corruption, whatever failure, whatever loss, He gets it. And if you've never said, Jesus, take it. Forgive. I want it to be my sin on your shoulders. I want you to carry away my brokenness, my loss, my failure. If you've never done it, then in a moment I'm going to pray for us. And and all you have to do is you just echo what I'm saying in your mind or your heart. and, And you will have the life of God, eternal life. You will have redemption. You will have freedom. You will begin a new opportunity, a new world in which the sin and the death and the corruption that has always held you in bondage is shattered and you have the possibility, the the opportunity to live a different way. We will never, ever know can't know what it cost for the triune God to give himself over to death that we might be free. Let us praise him in prayer and go out with thanksgiving. Gracious God, your overwhelming love, your unbelievable commitment to a broken and marred creation, 
We marvel, God, at your goodness. If there's anyone here uh, who would like to receive the life of God now and be forgiven, to have the burdens and the, cor- and the corruption, the sin, the wrongdoing taken away forever, and to enjoy eternal union with the Father, Son, and Spirit, just follow me in this prayer. God, I believe that all of my evil, all of my wrongdoing, you put it on your son. You allowed him to take it. And I believe that he carried it away. And God, I receive that gift right now. I receive the gift of him removing all of the stains, all of the guilt, all of the wrongdoing, all of the corruption, past, present, and future, without reserve, without reservation. And I ask you, God, to give me your eternal life now that I might live in mutual joy with you the rest of my life and through all of eternity. Father God, all of us, we look to you as the ultimate example of what love is, of what life is. We confess that your self-giving, self-abnegating love is beyond our comprehension, and yet, God, we ask for a measure of it in our own lives. So that we too might be self-giving, that we too might be willing to carry the burdens of others, that we too might be willing to take the way of the cross in whatever small and insignificant manner, that we might be like you just a little bit. Lord Jesus, we love you and we worship you, and in your name we pray. Amen.